couple of weeks ago, actually before we look into this uh, sermon, new sermon series that we're going to be in, I want to tell you about uh, some bad news I got a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> you, uh, I was just going about my normal Wednesday and I got hit with some bad news out of the blue. That's the way bad news usually comes, doesn't it? Just without warning. And the bad news was that our Swiss Army knife of an executive pastor, Dustin Krantz, has decided that he is going to go to work in the marketplace. And so he will be leaving our staff in the near future. Now the good news is that Dustin has been very gracious to give us a significant advance notice about this, so you'll be, you'll be able to see him for a while. But I knew immediately uh, we were going to be left with some big shoes to fill. Think about it. During the five years that he's been here, Dustin has preached for us. He has led worship for us on several occasions. And for a number of months during COVID was our main worship leader. And then speaking of COVID, in 2020, we, we learned on a Thursday, in 2000, we learned on a Thursday that the world was going to go into lockdown and that we wouldn't be able to hold services for a while. On Thursday, we had no technology to post a video of a service or a sermon. But Sunday, just a few days later, Dustin had figured out what equipment we needed, ordered it, got it shipped, assembled it, and made it possible for us to post a video that very same Sunday and each Sunday thereafter during COVID. Without Dustin, we wouldn't have been able to post any of our services, and I strongly suspect and I mean this sincerely, that we would not have survived COVID as a church without him. He was quite literally God's gift to us as a church to enable us to survive that period of time. Dustin has also overseen a dozen other aspects of our church, too numerous for me to mention here, but a, we as a church owe him an enormous debt of gratitude for what he's done during his five years here. And B, he has indeed left such enormous shoes to fill that there's no way that one person uh, will be able to replace him. It will take multiple people to fill his shoes. But again, because he's been so gracious to give us advance notice before he leaves, we have some time to figure out how we're going to go forward. And as each element of our plan takes shape in the weeks and months ahead, we will, of course, make you aware of all of those changes. But please know that it is no small thing for us to lose Dustin Krantz from our staff. As I said, he's going to remain on our staff for a while, so we don't have to say goodbye uh, today, and he and his family aren't moving to another city, which is good news. In the meantime, though, between now and when Dustin does leave, feel free uh, to send him an email or, or a text uh, telling him how much you appreciate him. You can send him an email at dustin at citychurchevv.com. And for everyone who's listening online around the world, Dustin's personal phone number so that you can text him or call him. <laughs> I'm kidding. I won't give that, but I do hope, whether it's today uh, or whether it's, whether it's uh, another Sunday, whether you do it in the future, whether you do it in person through email, text, I hope that you will communicate to Dustin how much he means to you and how much you and we as a church appreciate this man.
Let me say a word of prayer. Yeah, please, please, please. Yeah. You bet. Let me say a quick word of prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we, um, we recognize that none of us in and of ourselves are worthy um, on staff. Uh, none of us in the ministry are worthy of representing you in and of ourselves, but because of your grace, you use very imperfect vessels like me um, to serve you. And we thank you so much for Dustin Krantz, for what you have done in him and through him at this church. Um, thank you so much for the way that he has loved this church, the way he has cared for this church. And Lord, we pray that uh, as we go forward that you would guide us to, uh, you know, the, the plan that, you know, to fill all of the multiple different roles that he has played. We pray that you would bless him and his family as well. And, uh, Lord, that uh, through our body of believers here, that he and, and Hillary would know how much we love them, how much we appreciate them for what they've done here at this church. Lord, we ask now that you would speak to us through, your, uh, through the letter of James. And, uh, Lord, transform us and turn us into people who display the image of Christ to the world in which we live. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we do forge ahead. And this morning, we begin a new series called Authentic Christianity. And it's a series on the book of James in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, find the book of James in it. And if you would, just uh, keep your finger tucked at, uh, or keep your finger at uh, James chapter 1, uh, verse 1. And I'll meet you there in a moment. The book of James chapter 1. Uh, verse 1. In 1949, an American writer by the name of Joseph Campbell wrote a book entitled The Hero with a Thousand Faces. The book was a result of his study of the journey of archetypal heroes found in mythologies throughout the world. For those of you who are Star Wars fans, George Lucas credited Campbell's work for influencing the, the Star Wars saga. Campbell observed that there's a universal story structure that takes a heroic character through a series of stages that form a, a, a part of their story of transformation. Now, it's a bit more complicated than this, but you can break it down essentially into four parts. The hero's origin story is shaped by some kind of adversity. There's adversity. Usually, usually they, are, they are orphaned. Okay? Second, the hero receives a call out of the ordinary life that they are living into a life of adventure, change, growth. Third, the hero faces many kind of trials which prepare them for their role as a hero. And then fourth, the hero accepts their calling, embraces it, and they return to the ordinary world to face his or her biggest challenge yet, often ending with a narrow victory. Now, I bring this up. I bring this up because I don't think it occurs to many followers of Christ that gospel transformation is a call to heroic living. Consider that we have been called by God 
out of an ordinary life into a life of adventure, change, and growth. Like many superheroes, we were orphaned and adopted into God's family. We too are tried and tested. We are called to accept and embrace our heroic calling. And if you don't think heroic living is an accurate description of our calling, listen to some of the ways the New Testament describes the life to which we are called. We are called to fight the good fight, finish the race, put on the full armor of God, to stand against the devil's schemes, to demolish arguments that set themselves up against the knowledge of God, to take captive every thought, make it obedient to Christ. We are to pick up our cross, live sacrificially, be light to a dark world. Gospel transformation, you see, it's a, it's a call to heroic living. And the book of James is a challenge to embrace that call. In fact, you might make a note of this somewhere. You could summarize the message of the book of James in this way. Here it is. Authentic faith transforms ordinary lives into heroic lives. Let me say that again for those that are listening online. Authentic faith transforms ordinary lives into heroic lives. That's the message of the book of James. And was that how you think of gospel transformation? Is that how you think of what God is calling you to? Heroic living? Christ's life was heroic. And as imitators of Christ, we are called to the same. Now, before we jump into this letter, I want to make one thing very, very clear from the outset. If you've been with us at City Church uh, for any period of time, you're you're familiar with uh, the set of equations that I'm going to show you. We've said on many occasions that man-made religion says this. It says, believe plus obey, and you will be saved. All man-made religions have this in common, every single one of them. Believe in whatever the God is, obey the commands, the rules, the tenets, and then you will be saved. In other words, if you think about it, in man-made religion, you save yourself by making the choice to believe and by doing good things. That's man-made religion. Now, if Christianity were a man-made religion, the book of James would be a list of all the things that you must do to be saved. But the gospel isn't man-made. The gospel is God-made. And as you might expect, the gospel says something completely different than man-made religion. Here's what the gospel says. The gospel says, believe equals you're saved, therefore obey. Believe equals you're saved. Therefore, as a result of being saved, you're already saved. As a result of being saved, therefore, obey. See, the the message of Christianity is not about what you do to be saved, but what Christ has done to save you, to rescue you. You don't save yourself. He does. Only as a result of what he's done to save you, can your ordinary life be transformed into a heroic life? And so the book of James then is focused on the part of the equation that says, therefore obey. This is not a book about how to be saved. This is about a book about how to live the authentic heroic life to which you've been called, okay? Now, with that in mind, I want to start where James starts in verse 1. James Chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to the twelve tribes 
that are scattered among the nations. Greetings. Now, first question is, uh, who is this James? Well, James was Jesus' younger half-brother, fathered by Joseph. For most of Jesus' life, uh, James didn't believe in Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. He joined with the rest of his family to try to stop Jesus from saying some of the things that Jesus was saying. He thought he was crazy. You know, you're just, listen, you're just our brother. Shut up. Stop making a fool of all of us and come back home. That's what the family thought of Jesus. In fact, James didn't become a believer until after Jesus died on the cross and was raised again for the dead. Apostle Paul says that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to over 500 people at once, and then he appeared to James, his brother, after stepping out of the grave. Now, James eventually believed, and he became the head of the most famous church in the world at the time, the church in Jerusalem. Talk about, well, you want to talk about heroic living. In about the year 62, A.D. 62, enemies of the gospel took James to the pinnacle of the the Jewish temple. And they said, essentially, look, there are too many people that are becoming Christians. Renounce your belief and tell them to turn away from Jesus. But James refused. And so they threw him off of the temple. But the fall didn't kill him. Beaten and broken, he twisted to his knees and he began to pray for them with the very same words that his older brother used when he was dying. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And at that point, they came down from the top of the temple and they stoned him. They beat him over the head with a fuller's bat until uh, he was dead. That's the person who's writing this letter about heroic living. Now, the second question is, who are the 12 tribes that are scattered among the nations? Well, this is a reference to the Jewish people who had believed in Christ. The 12 tribes made up uh, the nation of Israel, and each tribe was named after one of Jacob's descendants. We have to remember that the first believers in Christ were Jewish people, not Gentiles like uh, I presume most of us in the room are. Uh, They were Jewish, and many of them were severely persecuted for their faith in Christ, forced to leave their homes, forced to leave their families and their homeland. That's why he says that they're scattered among the nations. They they had to run for their lives. So what follows makes really makes perfect sense. Look at verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials. There's what makes sense. They're facing trials. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, uh, not lacking anything. Before I understood that Christianity is a call to heroic living, I had a hard time understanding and appreciating what James is saying here. In fact, I will tell you that I found it to be profoundly insensitive. He's writing to people who have lost everything, and he says, consider it pure joy. I mean, come on, how insensitive. I thought he was either uh, suggesting a kind of masochistic outlook on life, or some kind of sappy 
uh, rose-colored glasses, ridiculously optimistic outlook that only an out-of-touch, reality-denying kind of person would be able to take. You know, carry sunshine in your pocket, and no matter what happens, you plaster a smile on your face, and tell everyone, praise Jesus, I'm going through a trial, and I'm having so much fun. That's how I, that's how I read this for a long time. Uh, but then I noticed a subtle but very important word that makes all the difference in the world. And I think you may be surprised by the word. <laughs> it's the word it. As in consider it pure joy. He doesn't say, notice, he doesn't say consider trials pure joy. That would be, that would be masochistic and silly and superficial. Because the visceral response to trials, to pain, is it's suffering and sorrow. It's not, it's not joy. It can't be. It shouldn't be. It hurts. It's hard. You get your heart breaking, it hurts. You get your heart broken, it hurts. You lose your business, you're in pain. You go through a divorce, you suffer. You lose a loved one, you, you mourn. You don't put on a happy face and pretend everything is, is good. James doesn't say, consider trials pure joy. He says, consider it pure joy. And the question is, what is the it to which he's referring? Well, you have to look at the end of his thought to understand. And in fact, I want to work through these verses backwards uh, today. So I want to just start at the, at the end, the end of verse 4. That phrase, mature and complete not lacking in anything, means, uh, it means to be equipped for every job. The word perseverance is, is the Greek word hupomone, which means to, it means to hyperstand, uh, to stand fast. Nothing moves you because you have an inner poise and peace that, that no circumstance out there can shatter, and so nothing can move you. Now think about those words, and I want you to think back to what I said a few moments ago. We said that there is a universal structure to hero stories. It begins with the, the hero's story being shaped by some kind of adversity. And then the, the hero receives a call into an extraordinary life. And then the hero is tried and tested on many levels. And as a, res as a result of the trying and the testing, the hero is able to accept and embrace their calling and live as a hero conquering evil, and, and, and so forth. Well, I want you to understand, that's what James is describing here. The it to which he is referring in verse 1, when he says, consider it pure joy, is the kind of heroic person you will become as a result of the trials that you endure, equipped for everything you will face, able to stand fast, to persevere, to remain poised, no matter what life throws at you, you know, you're, you're Jason Bourne. Doesn't matter how great the odds are against you. Doesn't matter who they throw against you. You're ready. You're cool. You're calm. You're collected. Or you're Wonder Woman. Your knees don't shake in fear. You've got your cute little outfit on. You've got your lasso of truth. Your indestructible bracelets, your lethal tiara, your shield. You're not panicking. No matter what life throws at you, you're not running away. You're not shaking. James is saying that the end result of trials is to be equipped to be the heroes uh, that we all want to be. 
to live the heroic life that we all want to live. That's what James is saying. The theologian Paul Tillich has a great essay in his book, The Shaking of the Foundations. And in this, in this book, he has an essay that, that observes that during moments of suffering, people discover they are not what they appeared to be. He says, the suffering scours away a floor inside themselves, exposing a deeper level. And then that, flo- that floor gets scoured away, and another deeper level is re- revealed. In other words, they discover strength and dignity and courage and perseverance they never knew was there before as a result of the suffering. New York Times columnist uh, David Brooks was speaking about the subject of depth of character when he observed that when people look forward, when they plan their lives, they say, how can I plan to make myself happy? But he says, when people look backward at the things that made them who they are, so they usually don't talk about moments when they were happy. They talk about moments of suffering. And so he concludes by saying, so we plan for happiness, but we are formed by suffering. This phrase that James uses, mature and complete, not lacking anything. As I said, it means to be equipped for every job. And here's what it means practically. Here's what it means practically. It means the suffering that comes through trials. Um, It equips you to be a good father or a good mother or a good husband or a good wife, a good man or a good woman. Why? Because trials come along and they show you your own limitations. They show you your own flaws. They teach you humility and self-knowledge. They make you empathetic to other people. If you don't suffer, it's hard to understand what they're going through when they suffer. Basically, trials and suffering give you almost all the traits necessary for you to be useful in the life of anybody else. Trials almost always show you some things that you thought you couldn't live without, but you can. They almost always teach you how to lean on God. And that, of course, brings freedom. So there's humility and self-knowledge and freedom and usefulness for others that comes through trials. In other words, suffering equips you to do virtually everything you do much, much better. This is heroic living that James is describing. That's the it that he's referring to when he says, consider it pure joy, the end result. You might make a note of this somewhere. A person's ability to endure pain or difficulty is directly related to how highly they value the end result. person's ability to endure pain or difficulty is directly related to how highly they value the end result. You know, I watch a movie like Rocky. I'm a a sucker for those kind of movies. I mean, I I really am. And I'm always like, you know, man, I want to be Rocky. I just don't want to do the sit-ups. You know, I don't want to run. I don't want to do all the stuff that you have to do to be Rocky. I'm not, not willing to endure that. I don't highly value enough the end result to go through the suffering. 
But this is how heroes are made. There is no other way. Being tried, suffering, it is part of the hero's journey. Now again, working backwards, I want you to notice that James' choice of words is important. He doesn't say, James doesn't say, if you face trials. He says, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That's an important distinction. His point is, the trials are inevitable. Trials are inevitable. Now, when I was younger, I thought of trials as sort of, I guess I thought of them as an unusual aberration of life. But the older I've gotten, I think just the opposite. I think that the absence of trials is an aberration. I mean, there are, there, there are the everyday trials of aging. It used to be that when I sat down in a chair or when I got up from a chair, I did so quietly. These days, getting up or sitting down are both accompanied with a grunt and a, oh, you know, something like that. So there's that. That's the everyday trials of aging. But more than that, the older you get, uh, the more you have to lose. You have people whom you love more deeply than you ever imagined possible. And the more people that you love that deeply, the more deeply they can hurt you. And not only that, the more deeply it hurts to see them hurt. No one told me when Amy and I were bringing three kids into the world that we would never be better than the child who is suffering the most. I'd still bring them into the world, but nobody told us that. One Saturday a few years ago, I think I've mentioned this story to some of you before, I got a call from my oldest son, and the phone call started by saying, we're okay, Dad, which you know what that means. He said, we're, we're okay, Dad, but Blake, my middle son, and I, my oldest son, Corey, uh, we were in a car accident. Uh, they live in Dallas. Their car was totaled. They were hit by an errant driver, forced at full speed into a concrete divider on the freeway. And uh, they could have easily uh, been killed. It was, a, it was a, a, a bad accident. And they were fine, bruised up a little. But it haunted me for a long time. It still does at times. It's just out of the middle of the nowhere. I, I, I might be driving down the road. I might be laying in bed at night. And... I'll just have this thought, what if one or both had been killed? And some of you know that suffering. You have lost a child. Um, or you suffered in some other way. A bunch of people in Florida just recently lost everything they owned in a hurricane. It wasn't their fault. They lost it. Maybe you have someone that you work with who's making your life miserable. Your, your, your marriage feels like it's falling apart. You recently lost a parent. The more you love, uh, the more suffering that you feel. James says, whenever you face trials of many kinds, you don't have to go looking for trials, nor should you. Suffering for the sake of suffering is meaningless, but trials are going to come to you. Trials are inevitable. They're not an aberration of life, I will tell you that. 
They're inevitable. They're going to come. And James wants you to understand that. So he's speaking to these Jewish people who've lost everything for their faith in Christ. But his words echo down through the ages, don't they? Some of you here today are suffering as a result of some trial that you're going through. James says to you, know this, that it's not an aberration. Sometimes trials come as the result of decisions we make. Sometimes we experience consequences, not punishment, consequences. But sometimes trials come for reasons that have nothing to do with us. James wants you to understand this is life. This is what it is. Don't be taken by surprise by it. Trials are inevitable and they're part of the hero's journey. I want to end at the beginning where James says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. If he's not being masochistic and he's not being sappily optimistic by saying this, what's he, what is he saying? What's he, what's he telling us? Well, the word consider is the Greek word hegeomai, which means to think, but it can also be used to refer to leading. Uh, or governing. The point is that James is saying that when you go through one of these inevitable trials in life, you can't be passive about your thinking when you're in the midst of a trial. You have to be intentional. You have to take control of your thinking. You have to lead or govern your mind. You can't just let it go where it wants to go. You have to take responsibility for what you think. You have to remind yourself this is what he's saying. You have to remind yourself, this is how God makes heroes. This is how he does it. Now, he didn't cause this suffering in my life, but he uses this suffering in my life, and he's going to use it to turn me into a hero. You see, you have to remind yourself of this because uh, suffering without hope over time leads to despair, and despair is dangerous. Des desperate, despairing people often do desperate, despairing things. Uh, I don't know, you may have seen just about a month or so ago a CFO of uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, 52 years old, got into some trouble, jumped to his death from the 18th floor of a building in New York City. Desperate, despairing people do desperate, despairing things, suffering without hope. Young girls cut themselves in desperation. Boys may retreat into isolation and obsessive video gaming out of despair. Mom can't bring herself to get out of bed to face the day and so she stays locked up in her room. Or she may just keep grinding through her days waiting until a reasonable time to start drinking, a time that keeps coming earlier and earlier and earlier in the day. Desperate, despairing people do desperate, despairing things. Men drink obsessively, work obsessively, drug obsessively, use sex obsess obsessively. You see, suffering without hope tends to breed despair, and despair can often lead to desperate, despairing behavior. James is saying that you have to be intentional to let hope govern your thinking when you're in the midst of a trial, or despair will set in, and followers of Christ do not have to live in despair. Followers of Christ have hope. 
The word consider here is a countermeasure to despair that is based in reality. James is saying, remind yourself, even in the worst moments, even when you're curled up in a ball under the covers and you can't face the day, even when tragedy has taken your breath away, be intentional. Take control of your thinking. Remind yourself that there is meaning in all of this, that there is a God who is in control, and this is how He makes heroes. You have to remind yourself of that. Take control. Lead your mind. Govern your mind. Don't let it go where it wants to go. Don't let it despair because as a follower of Christ, you do not have to live in despair. You have reason for hope. That's what James is saying when he says, consider it joy. Look at the end result. Yes, this is terrible. Yes, this hurts. Don't fake it. Don't pretend like it's all okay. Don't put on a happy face. Don't do any of that nonsense. Don't run up to people and say, praise Jesus, I'm suffering, because I don't believe you when you do it. But consider it pure joy in the sense that this is how heroes are made. A few moments ago I said that a person's ability to endure pain or difficulty is directly related to how highly they value the end result. Hebrews 12 says, fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured, that's the word persevering by the way, it's the same word James is using, hyperstanding. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross for the joy. What was the joy? Well, the joy was the, the end result. Uh, the joy was you. The joy was me. That's why he endured the cross. His heroism rescued you. You brought joy to him in the midst of his suffering. When your life is getting dark, when things are getting bad, fix your eyes on Jesus. His suffering turned him into a hero. And he wants to transform you into a hero too. And like every hero, you can't become a hero without being tried, without being tested. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Lord, I recognize that there are people in the room this morning who are in this very moment being tried, uh, being tested. Life has thrown trials their way, and it is perhaps severe, and they are suffering, and there is no happiness to it. There's no putting a happy face on it. There's no pretending like it's all okay. There's no pretending like you don't want to be out of it. Uh, there's sorrow and maybe mourning and pain and real suffering in some way. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them through this passage that while despair is the visceral response to suffering as Christians, uh, we don't have to despair 
we don't have to pretend, but we also don't have to despair because we know there is hope. This is how you turn us into the heroes that you want us to be the little H heroes who are representatives of the big H hero in Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, others of us today are not suffering, but we don't know what tomorrow brings. It could hit like that. Prepare us for that today, Lord. If there are people this week that experience some trial that they didn't know today that they were going to face, Lord, would you bring the truth of this passage back to their minds through the power of your Spirit, speak it deeply into their hearts. And Lord Jesus Christ, above all, we praise you. And we fix our eyes on you who endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, the joy of obedience to your Father, and the joy of rescuing people, sinful people, broken people, like me and like the others in this room. And it is in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Uh, we always say the cross changes everything. You look at the cross and you see, you see a person suffering, a person living a, in that moment, a sacrificial, selfless life, going through enormous pain, not putting a happy face on that. He suffered, Christ did, and he anguished. But we see that there was purpose to the suffering, the end result, you, me, all of the redeemed. God transforms, he uses that suffering to change people forever. Cross changes everything. Hey, one announcement before you leave, just want to make you aware that we have a trick-or-treat event coming up October the 30th, 4 to 6 p.m. We'd love for you, your grandkids, kids on the block, whoever you want to bring, you. If you want to come as an adult, you come, whatever, but we'd love to have you. Thanks so much for being here uh, this week, and we'll see you again next Sunday. Bye-bye.